This is the Ned Group Investments Podcast, a space where you can learn more about our fund managers, the funds they manage, as well as getting up-to-date and important developments affecting the investment world and how they might be relevant to you. Now, we're moving on to the Ned Group Investments Raymaker Fund. And on September the 1st, 2020, we introduced offshore equities as a component of the fund. It was a move that we thought was necessary and beneficial for the underlying investors, given the narrowing of the SA-listed SA investable universe. Today, I have the pleasure of introducing Steve Minar, Portfolio Manager and Global Equity Specialist on the ABAX Investment Team. Hello, Steve. Thanks for coming in today. Now, when making the change on, on the fund, we agreed with ABAX that it was important to, to that the global component of the fund would be managed in a holistic manner alongside the SA equity holdings. And we asked Steve to work with An- Anthony Sedgwick and, and constructing and managing the combined portfolio. Now, St- Steve's got over 22 years investment experience with 11 years tenure at ABAX Investments build up a strong track record managing the global equity fund at ABAX and it's something that attracted us and gave us confidence that they were able to to manage the resultant portfolio. I'm now going to hand over to Steve who will give us an update on the evolution of the of the fund during 2020 and the team's views on local versus offshore companies whether local will trump global or whether local is still lecker. Thanks very much Steve. <laughs> Okay, well done on that pronunciation and sorry for the local vernacular there, but you know, just when you think you go offshore, then all of a sudden the RAND strengthens again and then all of a sudden local is lacquer as we used to, used to say in South Africa. So let me just jump straight into it. Okay, there you go. So as Rob said on the 1st of September, we, we found out the ability to add offshore. We've obviously been agitating for this for, for a while because we felt that we just, we, we kind of been painted into a corner in this, in the South African market in terms of the opportunity set. So what I show in the two graphs there is on the bottom left hand side, if you just simplistically take the, the SA equity fund from, from ABAX, you take the, the ABAX global fund and you do a simplistic 70-30 combination between the two, you would have been far better off than just sitting in the in the SA stocks to tune of about 24% over the last two years, uh, last five years, obviously not the same return as the doubling that we've had. This is in rands, measured in rands in the global equity fund. But interestingly, over the last five years, the rand has only depreciated by 10%. So it's not all rand. It is to a large extent because you have the ability to just invest in a far more diversified opportunity set than what you have in the SA market. On the right-hand side, unfortunately, is the prognosis of what happened since the 1st of September. And that's a risk that you take. If you make a decision like this to add offshore, you know, what, what is the right time? Is it the 1st of September? Is it the 28th of, of March last year when the rand was at its worst? When do you make the decision? It happened to be the 1st of September. In the short term, you can see there that the SA equity actually outperformed global and it actually outperformed what the, what the global fund would have done in rands as well. But that is very short term. It's literally the last three months. We think it is still absolutely the right thing that you want to do. And we get to that to the next, to the next slide. So what did we have to do to, to, to move money offshore? There are a couple of things that you have to do. Well, first, you have to make room. You have to sell some of your SA equity. And I have those little emojis there, and don't get too hung up on the emojis. Some of them are smiley faces, and some of them are a bit red in the face if you look at it over the last three months. So the decision is, yes, 1st of September, you can now move up to 30% of the fund offshore. Do you take all 30% on one day, or do you take your time and weave it in? Is it over three months, six months, a year? What do you do? Well, we had the October medium-term budget policy speech coming up. 
we were quite concerned that we're going to have a couple of new nuances being thrown at us that might significantly weaken the rand or have an impact on how foreign investors see the South African market. So we gradually moved about 15%, say half of that budget that we have, offshore at an average of 1640. Hence the red face, if you look at where the rand is today, 1640 wasn't the greatest rate to move it in. Since then, we added another 3%, so we're sitting at about 18% offshore at the moment. That means we still have 12% budget to move offshore as and when we see the RAND as being overvalued. And you've heard Richard, you've heard Omri, you've heard some of the other speakers this morning. We don't think the RAND is particularly cheap at this, at, at this point in time. If anything, we think the RAND is slightly overvalued, specifically if you look at the longer-term prognosis. Right, that is the rent. What did we do in the SA portfolio to make room or to find the money to move offshore? Well, the first thing is we, re we reduced some gold, Sassol, MTN, Vodacom, Mondi, Imperial, Cap. Those are all particular companies that we thought, well, we can do with, 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 with less exposure. And that actually worked out quite well. We consolidated the banking exposure, whereas in the SA portfolio you would have, say, three or four or five banks. We say, well, in a larger, more internationalized portfolio, you don't need all of that. We focus on First Rand, Standard Bank, and Capitec. That's had mixed success. We kept the overall weighting towards the, the, the banking sector, but more concentrated. But since then, in the last couple of months of last year, we had the likes of APSA, NetBank, and so forth actually storming ahead. So with hindsight, we should have kept some of those, but that's how it works out. We sold out some of the smaller positions, like Alive Healthcare, Anna Bush, GrowthPoint, Alt Mutual, Pepco, and so forth, and that's actually worked out quite well. The one sector we actually added to were the platinum miners. And again, with hindsight, that was being, it's a very good decision. So we really upped the, the, the overall position that we have in miners. And as a relative position for SA stocks, that is now a lot higher. What didn't we really fiddle too much with? Well, first thing, we kept nice pass and process. Tencent is still the top exposure for the fund. And it's one of the companies that we absolutely believe in the, in, in, in the future of that business in terms of the underlying business drivers. And I get back to that on the next slide. And then, as I said before, the SA financials as an overall sector, we kept more or less intact. Right, so now we created this 15 to 18% offshore. What did we actually buy with it? And what I thought of doing is instead of giving you a list of foreign companies that we, that we bought, and as a matter of fact, I think you'll recognize most of those names. We're not trying to discover some, you know, sort of never heard of before Indian coal miner and, and, and peg our hopes on that. We're trying to find businesses, quality businesses, Good cash flows, good balance sheets, businesses that we can sleep well at night that we own these businesses. So what I already did is say, well, what different business drivers do you now have exposure to in the fund? And that's very important for us to look at it this way because it's all about the risk diversification that you have in the fund and it's underlying what do you own. We want to sit back and say, here's a portfolio that if I have this in my portfolio for the next five years or three years, whatever your time horizon is, the time horizon is not one week or two weeks or three weeks. It's a slightly longer period than that. Do you think these are the things that you want to own, that you want to have exposure to? And, and, and we feel very strongly about that. So the first one is, you know that China is growing. We're living in an uncertain world. We've got COVID, we've got currencies, we've got geopolitics. It's, it's, there are lots of uncertainties. But for one thing is, we know that China is growing. Yes, it fits and starts in different areas, but overall, very good growth. So in addition to Tencent, and you probably know Tencent quite well by now, because many people will comment on that, but it's also the largest e-commerce and fintech market in the world but they're still investing heavily in the infrastructure. So now you not only do you own Tencent, but you own Alibaba, you own Anoy Conch, which is the biggest cement producer. I mean, they make about 300 million tons of cement. You compare that to the overall SA market, it's sitting at about 15 million tons. Well, that was before we had the latest declines in the market. So massive business with an ungeared balance sheet, very importantly. I've got a little red face against Alibaba and a little red face against Anoy Conch. 
share price of Anna Concha hasn't gone down. It just hasn't gone up much in the last three months. But that's fine. I mean, this is a cement business. It's not supposed to shoot out the lights. It's not a Tesla or one of these new fandangled IPOs that you have. It's a strong compounder, very good cash flow that will stand, stand in good stead over time. Alibaba, unfortunately, had the event with the regulations that changed. So Ant Financial that was supposed to IPO didn't. And as a result, the, the, the Alibaba share price came back quite significantly. We're comfortable with that. We still think Alibaba is one of the better businesses you can, you can own in order to have exposure to e-commerce, cloud, the e-everything that you have in China, as you do with Tencent, obviously less on the gaming side. Then you know that there's a global growth in e-commerce, fintech, social media, gaming, and streaming, not just in China, but also globally. For that, you want to own Visa, one of the best financial services businesses in the world, Amazon that you know well, and Google. Amazon, and I'll relay that to the next point, Amazon is not just selling cheap stuff online. Yes, it happens to be the biggest online seller in the U.S., but it's also the biggest cloud provider in the U.S., and it's a very, very, very profitable part of the business. They make 30% margin on the cloud business, and that's also what makes us excited about Alibaba, which is also a big cloud business. They don't make any margin there yet because it's quite competitive in China, but over time we believe they will get there. Again, the Visa share price has been there and thereabouts, so we haven't really made all that much money with it. But in the longer run, you do want to own this business. And if you go do yourself a favor and look at the longer run um, track record of Visa, this is a compounder of note. It's actually gone very, very steadily up over many decades, and we think they will continue to do that. Then the global acceleration of cloud that I just mentioned. So if you add Microsoft, Amazon, Alibaba, and Tencent, that's more than 80% of the global cloud business. These are the biggest companies in cloud, and you know that cloud adoption is happening. There's no way you can store what you want to store on either your phone, your iPad, or on your local machine. Every business wants to go into the cloud infrastructure, and that's, that's not going to stop. It's not a trend that's it's obviously accelerated by work from home and accelerated by COVID, but it's not going to stop. Then there's a global demand for device memory. Yes, if you do all this online stuff, you still need memory. You need memory on your phones, you need memory on your devices. Samsung, but people tend to confuse in terms of being just a, a phone manufacturer. They actually make most of the money on memory chips. The phones and the fridges and all of those things is a bit of a sideshow. Very happy with that. That stock, by the way, is up over 67% since we put it into the, into the Rainmaker Fund. It's a fantastic business. It still sits with over 20% of the market cap in cash, and it's trading at about a 15 PE. It's a great business to own. Then there's still a strong U.S. consumer trend of do-it-yourself. You know, there's this sort of lifestyling where you want to sit on your farm and raise some chickens slightly outside of town. For that, we own something like Tractor Supply. Trex, they do decking, uh, but it's composite. It's called plastic wood, although it's a much fancier product like that with a 25-year tractor, a 25-year guarantee. And then AutoZone. We've got something similar in South Africa as we buy filters and brake liners and whatever for your cars. It's a great trend. Those businesses feed into the consumer that's actually doing very well across the U.S. But back into Europe, because we're not just US-centric, you also have a European and a global growth actually in athleisure and luxury. For that, Adidas and Puma, and you don't need any introduction to those two names. And then Montclair, maybe a bit slightly different. People might not know it that much in South Africa because they sell these very expensive, very high-functioning puffer jackets, high-fashion puffer jackets. Great business, one of the smaller but best luxury retailers around the world, growing exponentially and still with lots of headroom because of the number of retail outlets that they have. And those businesses are doing exceptionally well. Montclair, one of the happy faces that we have there, as well. And then also global healthcare. I mean, obviously we're sitting with COVID, but can we sit here in Cape Town and decide, is it Pfizer, is it Moderna, is it Johnson Johnson, who will make the best vaccine, will it work, and what is the best way to approach it? We think there's a better way to play something like this. All those companies have to do lots of research and have to manufacture lots of product for that. They need all the lab equipment. They need all the diagnosis, diagnostic machinery. This is very, very sophisticated stuff. It's not something you're going to buy at the, at the grocery around the corner. 
And for that, you need a company like Thermo Fisher, who's done exceptionally well out of this whole business because of the nuts and bolts for the global healthcare sector that they provide. So what do we do now? You've, you've heard how we've made some room, some mixed success, and we've heard about some of the stuff that we've, that we've bought offshore, some that's worked well, some others like Alibaba that's actually not worked out that well. Where do we sit here? Is it still local as lacquer for the next year? Well, we tend to differ a little bit with that. You've heard about some of the other speakers talk about the, the prognosis for the rant in South Africa. We still think, if you look at those first couple of bullets on the slide, we've got some particular issues in South Africa that's over and above the, you know, the, the COVID pandemic that, we, that we're facing at the moment. We had these issues even before the pandemic hit last year. We've got a, a, you know, sort of a balance sheet that's very stretched. It's actually just repaying the interest on the, on, on the loans that we have is consuming more and more of the South African uh, income. And we have a depleting revenue base. We've got a tax base that's being eroded. It's looking quite bleak. At the same time, you've got the SA stock market where we actually have a shrinking number of stocks. We probably have 80 to 100 stocks that you can invest in for the likes of a rainmaker. That's a very, very small Lego set to play with in terms of the number of blocks. The silver lining to all of this, though, and, and it's not all bleak, is that we still have a very, very sophisticated and a very well-managed financial sector. We've got strong miners. We've got very good low-cost retailers, the likes of a Pepco and a Mr. Price. We've got some very good quality small caps as well. Don't throw those guys out. We've got a very liquid currency. Yes, it means it's up and down, but at least it's a very liquid currency. It's not the Naira or some of the other issues that you have in Africa. And we've got a reasonable treasury that's actually done reasonable up to date. And, of course, we've got NASPAS, and, and we all have to be thankful for NASPAS. Emerging markets is expected to outform, outperform developed markets over the next couple of years because developed markets have done so well. And South Africa is looking quite cheap on a relative basis to all of these. So there's actually some opportunities in the SA market as well. And if you look at the, the new rainmaker, if I can call it that, with the global, we are exactly exposed to those quality miners, to the quality financials, to the low-cost retailers, so some of those small caps, and then, of course, the NASPAS, which is a big holding in SA. Uh, and again, we're working smartly with how we put the two together. It's not just a foreign, the, the global fund and, the, and, and ABEX equity. We want to use the RAND budget to own the NASPAS so you can sort of open up your foreign budget and not buy 10 cents there, but buy some of the other stocks. We've only moved 18% of the 30% budget offshore, so we still have 12% that we can move if the RAND does strengthen more from here or even where we are at the moment. But for the longer run, we do think, and we're absolutely firm about this, that you want to have a more diversified fund. I think if you stand back and say, do you want to play only with a small Lego set in South Africa, or do you want to have that big Lego set that you've always dreamed of that sits in front of that window and say, are these all the blocks that you want to have available for you to put into, into the fund? So in conclusion, I actually neglected to talk about this. If you look at the, at the picture on the top right-hand side, even if you look at the SA stocks in South Africa, they're already well exposed to international earnings. So if you look at the British American tobacco, or if you look at the miners, the miners are effectively all offshore earners because the prices are set in dollars and they sell the product internationally. So if you look at the light green color there, that's the exposure to offshore for these businesses. Technology, which I, that's where I throw some of the offshore and NASPAS in, that's all offshore. Basic materials, the miners, it's all offshore. It's a little bit of sussel that sits in South Africa, but the rest are effectively offshore. The financials, yes, you have more exposure to South Africa. Consumer goods, again, a lot of it is sitting offshore. And then consumer services, the African industrials is more South Africa. Healthcare, again, it's a little bit in South Africa with Mediclinic, because again, Mediclinic have a lot offshore. And then the thermo telecoms, it's basically offshore. It's a little bit sitting in South Africa. But if you look at MTN and Vodacom, it's mostly offshore. So really, if you look at this portfolio, it's not too constrained with what's happened 
to the South African consumer or the South African economy. That will dictate some of the, I suppose, some of the views and the rand levels and these type of things. But in terms of where do these businesses make their money, it's already well in excess of 80% or, or close to 80% for the new rainmaker, which I think is a, is, is a good hedge and a diversification for the longer term. So in conclusion, I mentioned the first one. The diversity of South African businesses is somewhat narrow. That's why you want to have more diversity in the offshore side. It reduces the risk for the portfolio as well. You want to add profit growth and you want to add value, uh, value accretion potential. And that's what you have in the offshore portfolio. We're obviously mining, mindful of the timing. And, and with hindsight, the first of September wasn't the greatest timing, but that is, that, that's a shortened way of looking at it. We are absolutely adamant in the longer run, it is the right thing to do. We've got great opportunity in growing, well-run quality businesses at reasonable valuations. Over to you, Rob. Questions? Thanks very much, Steve. That was, that was very interesting. One thing I, I, I will pick up on first is, is the mining exposure and, yeah. and, the, and the PGM exposure sure. in particular. And we've obviously seen in the start of 2021 that sector's run again, another yes. 18, 20 yeah. percent, I think it is. So are you now looking to make more changes or is there still more legs there or is it the rhodium yeah. um, effect? So, so, so quickly, a lot of people ask about rhodium. So rhodium is about a third of the earnings base at the moment. It's only 10% of what actually gets mined. So there's obviously a bit of a disconnect there. But you have to look at the basket and typically when you dig out the ground, you get rhodium, platinum, palladium and then a whole bunch of other stuff that's, that's, that's maybe less relevant here. But, but those all go hand in hand, and between the, and, and the end user then decide, well, if the rodent price is too high, then we substitute some of the rodent for something else. Obviously, in some products you can substitute, others you cannot substitute, but there's a bit of a movement around that. So we're not simply hanging our hat on the rodent price, or just the platinum price, or just the palladium price. But if we look at this whole conversion to electric vehicles, it is happening a lot faster, and a lot, it's a lot more significant than what we would have thought. The world of electric vehicles is not just Tesla. But then platinum and palladium is not just an electric vehicle thing. It is also traditional vehicles saying, well, we now have to, you know, just get our fuel efficiency much better so we compete with these, with these new standards. It's, there's a global move towards ESG standards, more environmental friendly standards and protocols. And for that, you need a lot of these, a lot of these products. So we think the demand will continue. There's not an excess supply of these products around the world. As a matter of fact, it's a finely balanced and in many cases, there's a, there's a bit of a, a shortage of these materials as well, and the recycling hasn't provided enough up to date. So we believe our mines are still in a very good position at the moment. They're sitting at close to 25% cash flow yield. So they're making significant money. You might have seen some reports that say, yes, their cash cost per unit has gone up a lot, but it's a cash cost per unit. And they've obviously taken out fewer units last year because of restrictions of COVID and so forth. But on an overall cost basis and a profitability basis and on a dividend yield basis, and if you look at the strength of the balance sheets, these companies are looking very, very healthy and very, very profitable at the moment. And we think it's something that you continue to hold in the portfolio. But as you rightly say, it's something if you need to watch with a keen eye. You don't want to get married to these stocks. It is a cyclical industry in the long run. Okay, thank you very much. And one final question. You touched on ESG factors or the yes. effects of that. And you, we still hold a, a, about 1% in Sasol. And I saw yes. you... Saw you had a snigger when we talked about the performance of Sasol mm. last year. But I do understand that you've been having conversations with management at Sasol regarding what their governance, their, what their plans are to yeah. be a more sustainable business in the future. Yeah. Would, you, would you mind elaborating on those conversations and whether management were open to that? Yeah, the, the dilemma with Sasol, quite simply, is that the Isakuna plant with the Fisher-Trops process that they have there where they convert coal to fuel is one of the biggest polluters. It's actually the single 
biggest polluting site in the world. 60 million tons of CO2 per year. That's more than Portugal or Spain. I mean, that is quite significant. And that 60 million tons of 57, whereabouts it is, it's split about half off between the electricity they need to use to run the process and then the actual conversion process itself that actually causes this, these emissions. So the electricity side, you can maybe put some solar panels up or use something else, but it's a lot of electricity. You're not going to have one or two solar panels. So that takes a long time to thrift that. And they have done a lot on that, but they've been constrained with NERSA in terms of what they can do on that side as well. The process itself, there's unfortunately very little you can do unless you take the coal out and you put gas in. Well, you know what's happening in the north of Mozambique. It's a bit difficult to get gas, gas out of there at the moment. Plus, the own plant is, or the own gas field there is actually in decline. So they'll have to find some other gas and then still get it from Mozambique to South Africa, which will make it quite costly. So it's a, it's a historical basis that they have in the business that's very hard to thrift out. That being said, we do want management to move forward, to set some tough targets, to try and move Sassel forward on an ESG and on an emission basis. And that's part of the discussion, the frustration that we've had is that they haven't actually set those firm targets. And because they haven't set the firm targets, they couldn't put firm KPIs in place for management to say, we're tying your bonus to achieving this particular emission target or this particular ESG target. And that's a lot of the debate that we've had with them in, in the short term is to say, guys, how do you, how do we make sure that you're actually incentivizing management to actually achieve these ESG targets? But it, it is tough. This is not just a, a bank or a retailer that you say, don't throw away so much paper or put a couple of solar panels up and you, you know, you know, sort of a cleaner business. It's, it's, it's unfortunately part of the DNA in terms of the process that they use. And I think they've done an exceptional task over recent years. If you look at all the metrics, the water usage, the emissions, this non-understanding, um, everything else they've done, they've actually all trained it in the right direction. It's just completely overshadowed by this massive emission that you have coming out of the Secunda plant. Okay, well, thank you very much, Steve. I really appreciate you coming in and joining us here mm. at the Clock Tower today. Thanks very much for your time and uh, look forward to what the Rainmaker Fund has to offer in 2021. Thank you very much. We do our best. Negroup Collective Investments is an authorised collective investment scheme manager in terms of the Collective Investment Schemes Control Act. Negroup Investments does not provide advice on financial products and will only give you factual information. For further details on our funds and to view our terms and conditions, please visit negroupinvestments.co.za.